and we are here for a special edition podcast. I am your host, Dave Quiones. I would like to introduce Deputy Assistant Secretary Saunders. Sir, it is a pleasure to have you today. Welcome. Dave, thanks for having us. How are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. All right, so let's get into it. So I'd like to start, sir, by asking you, what is your background as it pertains to your education, your work experience, and the languages that you actually are fluent and speak? So right now, I'm the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere at the Commerce Department. And in this position, I'm responsible for working with U.S. companies and foreign governments to improve the U.S.'s commercial position. So helping companies promote their exports, make good sales overseas, working with foreign governments on market access issues so that they are friendly environments for our goods and services. I do that for all the Western Hemisphere. I've been at Commerce for about three years now, but before I was at Commerce, I was at CBP and its predecessor organization, the Custom Service, for 20 years. The last position I had at CBP was the Assistant Commissioner for International Affairs. I actually started in that office in the U.S. Custom Service as a student intern, rose through the ranks. I was a Director of International Training and Assistance for four years, Director of International Policy and Programs. I was the Deputy Assistant Commissioner, so pretty much rose through the ranks in that organization. And within, uh, apart from that 20-year span with Customs and CBP, I, was, I spent eight years at the U.S. Department of Transportation. I was Director of International Programs for the Federal Highway Administration. In terms of education, I, was, I, I did my undergrad and my graduate work at Georgetown University. In their School of Foreign Service, I did International Relations Law and Organization undergrad. I did did my master's degree with a concentration in government and inter-American affairs. A really great experience, and I actually was working at Customs while I was in college, so that was a really great experience. I was getting work experience while while, while studying what I love, which was international affairs. Languages, I speak uh, Spanish and Portuguese. I can understand a few other languages I need to work on. A, a few a few more, French being primary on, on that list. I've had the good fortune of working around the world with partners in Latin America, Caribbean, across the entire world, as a matter of fact. This this opportunity that's before me is really kind of the culmination of a, of what of where my experience has brought me. I've focused on international trade and different aspects, the customs mechanics, obviously, but also the enabling transportation infrastructure. And now I'm working on uh, trade policy and trade promotion. So It really is all about international trade and making it better. And so this position, if I'm successful, gives me an opportunity to work on those issues at another level. Sir, that's quite impressive. And you've been involved in so many things that have, you know, implications, not just for our country, but for the world. And I appreciate that. And I thank you for that. So moving on, probably, you know, the question that everybody wants to ask you, why are you running? Why are you running for secretary general of the World Customs Organization? Well, you know, Dave, it's, it's really an opportunity to serve on a, on a different level, like I said before. Customs is important work. I mean, those of us who have been involved in it really understand in a very clear way what the benefits are to Customs doing its job well. Our standard of living, our safety, our security, our prosperity really depend on Customs successfully doing its job at the border, letting the right things in and keeping the wrong things out. But the system is only as strong as its weakest link. And so while we make a lot of investments here in the United States in our customs operations to to do that work well and other countries make similar levels of investment, the global customs effort that the WCO represents is really about making sure that customs administrations around the world create a level of consistency, a level of reliability in how they do their jobs so that opportunities for criminal organizations or those who would misuse the system are minimized as much as possible. 
and that the benefits of international trade, you know, trade facilitation, the free movement of goods, and the benefits that come with our accessing different goods and services, that those things are maximized. So the reason I'm running for this position is it's an opportunity to be on the inside of critical conversations about the present and future of how customs operates around the world. And to bring a U.S. perspective into those conversations based on the, the, the wealth of experience, the positive work that we've done that I'm personally aware of over the past 30 years of my career to make sure that as these efforts proceed, they proceed with the best possible information, the best possible experience, not just from the United States, but from other members of the customs community that are working hard every day like we are to keep their borders safe and to keep trade moving. Absolutely. And I, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I always like to say communication is key. Communication is always key. So how, how does your experience relate to running for the World Customs Organization, sir? So most of my career has been about international customs work. As, as I mentioned, I spent most of my career with U.S. Customs Service and with CBP and the Office of International Affairs. And all the jobs that I had in the organization really dealt with exchanging best practices, developing policy, providing assistance, and really raising the bar in terms of how customs is, is done internationally bringing the benefits of our experience and expertise as the United States into global conversations has really has really been the cornerstone of my career. Um, as part of my time with CBP, I also played some active roles in, in the World Customs Organization. During the 1990s, I was one of the first U.S. Customs employees trained as a Customs Reform and Modernization Diagnostic Facilitator. This was a program that the WCO put together to create a cadre of experts around the world who would be able to go to other countries, look at their customs operations, make recommendations on how they could improve, and help them build action plans for actually refining their operations and doing a better job. Later in the 1990s, I was involved in and providing U.S. input into efforts to fight corruption in customs. And this led to a revision of something called the Arusha Declaration, which is essentially the WCO's statement of principles to members to guide them on how to improve their efforts to stem corruption within organizations to inoculate themselves from that negative influence so that they could do their jobs with a high level of integrity and, and performance of the highest level of service to their countries. Later in my career, and actually one of the last things I did with the WCO was I was chair of its permanent technical committee for two years. The permanent technical committee is a, one of the bodies that is statutorily organized within the WCO, made up of all of its members, that oversees the work of a number of technical working groups and committees that look at various issues of customs operations. They develop key guidance, they refine and update key guidance, and they're really one of the one of the engines within the organization that creates the technical outputs that members then use to improve their work day to day. Of course, uh, apart from working within the organization as chair of the Permanent Technical Committee, I also had the privilege of representing the United States as its key representative to the WCO's Policy Commission. Essentially, it's its, its executive steering group, as well as being a representative to the WCO's council, which meets annually and is normally led by our commissioner or our deputy commissioner. But again, being a key advisor in that highest body of the organization where it makes its key decisions and where it endorses the recommendations and the guidance that ultimately get into the hands of members. So let's focus on the first pillar, protect. 
In what ways do you see customs agencies around the world as protectors of their society? You know, Davos, in, in thinking about that question, I would borrow from CBP's ethos statement, because I think that there are a couple of pieces of the ethos statement that make it very clear how customs protects. One part of that is, as we are the guardians of the nation's borders, we safeguard the homeland at and beyond our borders. And that's fundamentally how customs protects. Customs is the face of the government. It's the first encounter with the state that an individual or a shipment makes as it attempts to enter or cross the border. And so protection involves ensuring that what enters is safe and fit for purpose. It is a protection is about making sure that something that doesn't belong, something that is dangerous, something that is prejudicial to the economy or to the safety or the public health of the people that live in the country, that those things don't make it across the border. But another element of protection that Customs is about is protecting the revenue. And while it's not something that is necessarily front of mind in the United States, because our taxation system is so focused on the Internal Revenue Service, the fact of the matter is, is that Customs was the first source of revenue for the U.S. government. It's still the number two source of revenue for the U.S. government. And the amount that we collect in Customs duties based on legitimate importations is substantial. And as you look at that across the world, because Customs across the world, one thing they have in common is they're all responsible for that revenue collection. One thing that is the case across many countries is that Customs provides a significant amount of government revenue, sometimes upward of 40% or more of government revenue. So when we talk about protection in the context of Customs, it's about keeping the bad stuff out, it's about letting the right things in, but it's also about collecting the money that fuels government services and government protection domestically. You know, local law enforcement services, social safety nets, those things in many countries are funded based on the money that's collected by customs. And if customs isn't doing its job correctly, then those services fall apart. So customs is key to protecting society both in a positive sense via the services that it enables, but also in, in a negative sense by keeping the wrong things that are dangerous to the country away from the society. Absolutely. And, and, and I think sometimes people don't realize everything that customs does. Let's talk a little bit about your experience in protecting, both through you know, revenue collection, which you, you had already touched on, and enforcement efforts. The way I'll focus on this is really talking about the things that I did that had international impact and how we as U.S. Customs or we as CBP interface with other organizations to really transmit the benefit of our knowledge and expertise in ways to help other countries improve their protection. So on the, on, the, on the revenue side of things, one thing I would mention is that I, w I came into the service right after we implemented the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was the largest free trade agreement that we had at the time. A lot of complexities, things that we just really hadn't dealt with on that significant scale. Because of course, the free trade agreement was about providing a range of duty exemptions and tariff preferences to our friends in Canada and in Mexico. But one of the things that's important in that agreement is sort of having the, the verification processes, the validation and auditing processes to make sure that preference is being accorded where it should be accorded and that those people who are trying to circumvent the rules and get benefits they shouldn't get and, and not pay revenue that they actually should be paying, making sure that we had the mechanisms in place to address those and keep those problems from happening. 
So one of the things that I was responsible for when I worked on the America's Desk in uh, Customs International Affairs was uh, helping to coordinate the verification teams that would go to Canada and to Mexico to actually go to facilities to make sure that they were producing what they claimed they were able to produce to make sure that things were in order on that end so that the things that we were seeing at the point of importation, that we were more comfortable that they were genuinely eligible for the duty preferences that NAFTA was affording them. And so that's a way of really protecting the revenue, making sure that there wasn't a revenue leakage because we were able to get our experts into the right places to make sure that everything was as it should be and that the shipments that we were seeing had their paperwork in order and were eligible for the preferences that they were claiming. I did something similar uh, later in my career when we first implemented the African Growth and Opportunities Act, or AGOA. And there was a similar process in AGOA. We were affording a number of duty preferences, and particularly in the textile sector, because that was a sector that we wanted to help cultivate in the countries that were the beneficiaries of AGOA. But we needed to make sure that the facilities that were producing were producing what and the levels that they were claiming so that the exports they were sending to the U.S., the things that we were seeing at point of importation were in order so that if they were going to be afforded duty-free treatment, that everything was as it should be. So there were a number of textile verification teams that we had to start deploying as part of that agreement and also providing technical assistance to the local customs administration so that they would know what to look for and to be force multipliers for us in that process. And so that was another area where I was... um, helping the subject matter experts get into the right places to protect the U.S. revenue. On the protection side, I would offer sort of a a different story uh, in the enforcement respect. For four years, I was director of international training and assistance, and it was one of the the best jobs I, I ever had because it was all about providing expertise, providing services to other customs administrations that had the willingness and the interest in doing better enforcement, but they didn't have the know-how. We coordinated, and we continue to coordinate via the same function, we coordinate interdiction training in the land, sea, and air environments, both here in the United States, where they get to see the benefit of how our infrastructure and our procedures and our officers all work together for a cohesive enforcement operation, but also deploying our trainers to countries around the world so that we can see their operating environment and help them implement the right types of procedures in the context of the constraints that they may have in their normal uh, operating locations. We worked in dozens of countries around the world, improving their interdiction capability. There are a number of seizures that are attributable to CBP assistance, seizures of radiological materials, seizures of narcotics, all around the world made possible because the officers, the foreign officers that we trained were doing their job better and protecting their societies by identifying and taking those prejudicial uh, items out of the international trade stream. But probably the, the, the capstone of my time as director of international training and assistance in the context of protection was my responsibility for creating the framework of capacity building that would support the safe framework of standards. The safe framework of standards is what we pursued in the WCO to basically give an international flavor to all of the changes in operations that we undertook in a post-9-11 context, looking at counterterrorism as an active part of the customs mission and enhancing our risk management, enhancing our interdiction capabilities, bringing non-intrusive inspection technologies and other tools to the fight to make sure that 
things that don't need to cross the border are not able to. And one of the things in the WCO that was important in getting that real change in paradigm was providing implementation support to members so that not only were we articulating a vision, but we were articulating a path to have them achieve that vision. And my job as Director of International Training and Assistance was then commissioner asked me to put together what capacity building for the framework should look like. We spent several months putting that together. It was mining the best of the experience we already had, providing enforcement-relating assistance, bringing other things to the fight, like making sure that we outlined what the legal authorities were that allow us to do our job well in an unimpeded fashion. Legal authorities, they're important for other countries to have if they want to operate with the same level of efficiency. Looking at advisory assistance related to technology so that we're looking at people, tech, and processes all together as ways to make the job better. And again, we, in that safe framework context, we worked with a handful of countries in a very concentrated manner to help them achieve or get closer to the vision that the SAFE framework articulated. And we had some great success with that. And again, as I said earlier, the international system is only as strong as its weakest link. And I'm, I'm thankful to say that I was a contributor with my team to shoring up some of those weaker links and in so doing, making the system a lot safer for us all. So how do you plan on developing and deploying tools to guard uh, societies against current and evolving threats? Well, in a WCO context, a lot of that is going to depend on making sure that the things that are already there, because the WCO has created a lot of great products, a lot of guidance, a guidance packages, toolkits, a lot of things that are on the shelf that member administrations can draw on to help them figure out how to improve their operations in specific contexts. So part of that is making sure that there's a knowledge of the what products are available, making sure that countries are accessing them, and making sure that we ask the question very deliberately, are the tools set up in a way that there's sufficient implementation support to actually help them do what's envisioned? Again, we can have lots of great things on paper. We can give people the how-to guides, but really what we're trying to accomplish in the WCO, in the U.S.'s bilateral engagements with other customs administrations, what we're looking for is to induce improvements in practice. So we've got to make sure as a WCO that we've got that bridge in place between the theory, the vision, and the practice, and making sure that we have feedback mechanisms with members so that if there are things that we're not doing that can help them, that we build those into the programming so that they can have better implementation support. My objective in this is for protection is making sure that to the extent that we have good tools and good products, that they're out there, that they're usable, and that they're having a practical effect in the members. But the other piece I would offer, Dave, is that we also need to be keeping our eye out for what the next threats may be so that we are preparing ourselves and preparing products and tools that will be responsive to things that perhaps we haven't encountered yet, but we need to be prepared for. And in that context, I think it will be important as the WCO to be in active conversations with members because we're in different places, we're seeing different things. And so having the best set of information in terms of what customs administrations are seeing so we can understand from their perspective what are the things that might be going onto the worry list that might get bigger. But also talking with stakeholders because as I think about 
you know, the community that we work with, the trade community, we've got companies that are active in multiple locations. They see different things. They see different, they, they have different perspectives based on their interactions with parties around the world. Are there ways the WCO can mine information from the regulated community, from the trade community, to get their understanding of what might be out there that we need to be paying attention to and incorporating that into our work stream so that as we look at what are the other things that the WCO needs to create, we're doing so in a way that is consistent with the demands that are out there, either as articulated by our members or as signaled to us by, by traders who are, by virtue of their business, are just seeing things in a different way. I love the conversation. I mean, in all honesty, I'm in wow of, of, of your experience and, you know, everything that you've done. And I'd, I'd even ask you, how many years have you had with the federal government? So I'll be reaching year 30, 32 in November. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's an accomplishment in itself, right? I thank you, you know, for your service to our country and to the government. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, you know, Dave, I really want to thank you for the time. And I just want to say every day of public service matters. You know, one of the things about the work that we do is I don't think any of us go home not knowing how what we did helps the public. International trade is always evolving. The people who would like to, you know, do harm are always figuring out new ways to do it. This is a very dynamic space that we're working in, and it will always be that way for customs. And, you know, we do the best that we can every day. My objective in pursuing this position in the WCO is to bring my energy, bring what I know, bring the network of people who've worked with me for years together to help the organization be able to provide services so that all the members have as much as they can to fight the adversaries and to do the best that they can for the legitimate trade community that genuinely shares our objective of making sure the system works, the system works well, and that we as consumers have access to the goods and services that we're accustomed to that really make up our standard of living. So this is going to be a work in progress for the entire time if I'm fortunate enough to to get the position of Secretary General, but it really is going to be a team effort. You know, we've all got perspectives, we've all got pieces of the puzzle, and bringing them together in form like the WCO to come up with solutions that make sense given the whole of what we know is really what this exercise is about. It's, it's, an, it's an honor and a privilege to be nominated by the U.S. for this position. I will say that when I started as a student intern in June 1991, I never imagined that this opportunity would be made available to me to represent my country on this stage and to be able to offer my services to a public that's bigger than the United States public. With that honor comes with comes with a lot of responsibility. I'm very mindful that this is a, a, a very heavy burden that I would be taking on in this position, but it's one that I would not be taking on alone. It's one that I'm confident and I'm happy that I will be taking on with the support of colleagues in a number of countries that share our objectives, that share our view. And frankly, if we get this right together, then we preserve a system that makes life better for us all. So that's really what this is about, and, and I'm really excited to have the opportunity to record a first podcast. I didn't think I would ever have an opportunity to do something like this. This is a great opportunity, a unique opportunity, and I really thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you, sir. I echo your sentiments as well, Deputy Assistant Secretary. And again, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, I wish you good luck on your campaign. Hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll be talking soon. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciated.